For the past two decades, the Genesis Foundation has played a major role in the lives of numerous musicians, actors and artists in the UK. And to mark this anniversary, we're making a series of podcasts with major figures in the theatre, art and musical worlds. One of the theatres that has been working closely with the Genesis Foundation is the Almeida in Islington. And in this Genesis 20 podcast, its artistic director, Rupert Gould, is in conversation remotely during lockdown with the playwright James Graham, whose acclaimed output has included This House, The Vote, Brexit, The Uncivil War, Inc. and Quiz, which recently made a hugely successful jump from the stage to the TV screen. The Genesis Foundation's support for the Almeida is focused on the Genesis Almeida New Playwrights Big Plays programme, and Rupert starts by explaining this to James. These podcasts are sort of under the umbrella of the Genesis Foundation, who have been great supporters of theatre and the arts, and we at the Almeida have been working with them, particularly around new writing, as I think you might be aware. So we have a, a programme of Genesis writers really working on, I guess, big new plays and the specific thing we were looking at are those writers who were moving, I guess, from the sort of studio scale and the um, the Fimbra uh, Royal Court upstairs stage to kind of more main stage because, of course, at the Almeida we don't have a studio and we had this tradition, I suppose, of some pretty big plays recently, uh, going back to Chimerica and King Charles III and, of course, your own play, Inc. And uh, we wanted to encourage kind of the next generation of writers to write on the bigger on the bigger scale about big themes and big ideas, which is obviously something that you've always been able to do naturally yourself. And uh, so I suppose I'll kick off but really by saying, do you think we're in a moment of big ideas for theatre now? I always get confused about what big kind of means. Does big mean scale? Does big mean ambition? Does it mean the, thing, the, the, the size of the topic you want to talk about? But I guess mm. naturally, given that technology and the paraphernalia we're using to share work at the moment feels more intimate and it feels more personal and human it's all about human connection through devices and and other things all about loneliness and solitude Mm. I think probably all of our creative brains are leaning a bit more towards the interior and the personal and the private rather than Mm -hmm. the big and the public and to me when I think of big in in the work of my own plays that feel big it's the plays that feel public it's about the plays that are about institutions right. or about mm-hmm. a, a, a conversation you want to have on a scale with a community of people there, which I don't think is either better mm-hmm. or worse or more effective or more what theatre should be doing. I just don't think... I, I'm not thinking in huge public ways at the moment in my, in my solitude. I'm thinking about myself and my, my feelings and my psychology, my mental health and those of the, the people around me, mm-hmm. which don't feel like public concepts. Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. So what do you feel about, you know, when we sort of emerge like moles on the Thursday evenings to applaud the NHS and these sort of moments of, you know, very theatrical public kind of coming together at some level? Do you, do you feel those are like a set of uh, interior moments that we're sharing or do you think that is a reaching for a bigger sort of semi-theatrical gesture at that point? Yeah, I think that's a very good point. That's a very good example of, of, the, of those brief moments when, when the cage shatters and suddenly you're, you, you see yourself still as the individual. And maybe I'm talking from my own personal experience because fun, fundamentally I live alone and I'm seeing this as a personal, private experience. And then there are moments when you have those weird moments of epic connection with your street or your nation. Yeah, those are huge gestures aesthetically mm. and emotionally and politically. And I guess also there's, the, there's those, those rare moments that we are having at the moment, which we never had before, mainly through television, but moments where we all, as a nation, watch a thing at the same time. 
sometimes that's drama, which I've yeah. hopefully benefited from recently, but I mainly mean um, politics and, and you know, the, the, the more common Wise Christmas special style viewing figures that the Prime Minister's speech is getting or the Queen's speeches of 25, 27 million. So, just, so I know what you mean. There's, a, there's an interesting, either an opportunity or a, a paradox there between something that feels, very, to me, very small, very intimate, very individual in the way that we're all atomised Mm. But that obviously the condition is, is is the most national, most collective thing we've ever shared. Also, we're all having these sort of small direct address moments, like you know the one we're having now, and that ranges from speaking to you know people we care about who we don't normally interface in this way, through to the way we receive the news from direct addresses from the politicians up to you know the Queen and, and the the weird effect that had when we were all kind of acclimatising to Zoom living and then the Queen gave that sort of, I thought, really effective kind of moving first address she gave about kind of putting it in the context of national struggle. All, all of which are, I guess, sort of things you associate with the small screen and, and I guess TV and, and then the national role that TV has always played in British sensibility. So, so for theatre in some ways that's quite... Um, uh, not an intimidating thing, but it's you know we're ceding all that ground to to two dimensional kind of experience. Personally, I feel like there's going to be a massive appetite, and I think that's what those those Thursday evenings are about. Sort of, yes, of course, we're applauding the NHS and you know the heroism of those people, but I feel also we are trying to reach into a, a need to to congregate at some level. And I was on a, a call with some. European artistic directors last week who were saying that some of them who who are, who are a bit further ahead than we are, like the Germans and the uh, I think the um, the Dutch, who were saying that even though they'd announced like very small projects and monologues and socially distanced work, their membership and uh, box office was twice what it would normally be, uh, which which is great because I think we're all living in this anxiety that no one's going to want to come back and sit in a in a full room securely, but. But obviously there is some great appetite there, which is really gratifying, I guess. I never believed even the moment the lockdown was announced and the suspicion came that this will only reinforce private consumption of entertainment and art on Netflix or on your mobile phone and, you know, to really embed that new culture and to distract from the more old-fashioned way of having to put your body in a different building. I think the appetite and the desire, the human desire to experience something sociably as a collective whether that's, frankly, running to the pub as soon as the pub opens and just wanting to be with people. Mm. Certainly after, after a whole summer, possibly autumn, possibly winter, of experiencing mm-hmm. plays, dramas, films as a small group and as individuals, of course, of course we're going to yearn to be with people. That's really gratifying. I'm really relieved to hear that, the, the stories of box mm. office hits in what, on whatever scale. People want to come back. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So what do, you, what do you feel about, you know, obviously one of the things you've talked, to, or two things you've talked about in your work that is like, I guess, a sort of run through as themes, one being national identity or Britishness or what it, what, who we are, the British, but, but, but also so many of your plays in particular have kind of looked at institutions and explored the, the, the human within the institution and, you know, what is, what is greater than the human and exists outside the human. And, you know, I guess in some ways that must push you towards the NHS in this moment, I imagine, as a, as a sort of point of study. I don't, not necessarily as a writer, but as, as, as an institution to look at. But, but do you, is your relationship to institutions, or, or do you think even the country's relationship to institutions will change through this period of being 
I mean, it feels like we are institutionalised in our isolation in that it's become very familiar and sort of, you know, like, like being at school in some way. But, but equally, we aren't in contact with those, those big institutions in the same way or if we, are, if we are, it's in a different way. And I just wonder what you think will, will emerge out of that sociologically. Or... It's, it's hard to know if this is true or if I'm just making it up. And for the past 10 years, I've, I've constantly believed that we were finally at the end of a particular moment and about to transition into the next moment. And actually what I think we've been experiencing politically for the past decade is, is the lack of a reset. We've constantly thought it's about to reset and a new contract will be written, a new social order will emerge. But actually what we've had is the, is the people keep pressing the button and nothing happens and we've had this paralysis and sometimes that's manifested itself in, in absurdity in public life, whether that's the utter scenes in Parliament of the past two years with unprecedented after unprecedented event tumbling over each other it felt like a, a, an old-fashioned LP on a record player skipping constantly but never quite being able to get to the next track and I think farce and tragedy follows that often quite a lot and now we have the resets of all resets it's just turned off and we're in this moment of suspended animation and I think that can't help but prompt whenever we emerge a completely new perspective and a completely new um, a new contract between us and our institutions and between citizen and state. But I'm feeling at the moment, even now, that we're, what we're asking consciously or subconsciously are questions about the role of government and the role of public bodies and organisations. Mm. And in a way, I think this time last year, say, there would have been a, such a huge amount of, not from me, who's always been semi-romantic about the institutions, but from a lot of people, a suspicion or a distrust or a lack of faith in public bodies and institutions or a complacency, a complacency towards them, including the NHS, and, and just the assumption that they'll always just tick along fine, or that, or that they'll, there'll be a managed decline, and what can we do about that? It's interesting to see a Conservative government, and a particularly um, idiosyncratic Conservative government, having to assume such a big government mentality in a, in a way that is so anti mm. their instincts, so anti-libertarian, so socialist, the biggest socialist spending, the biggest paying everybody's wages and, and, um, and forcing a particular a way of life on the country that's, that's never been done in the history of our country. It's, it's amazing. I, I, I don't know what the answer is or what the outcome will be is, but I think we are all suddenly aware that we live in a society, we are a part of a collective, and we have an individual role to play in that, but we are just more aware of our institutions as, as, mm-hmm. as physical presences than we probably ever have been. It's an interesting moment for culture in generally now because it feels like that, that we've moved for a number of reasons, partly to do with austerity and to justify arts funding, partly to do with the stratification of the wealth gap, partly just to do with identity, I guess, at some level. But we've, we've moved to seeking to quantify public benefit from culture and you know, what it does for mental health or young people or excluded groups and and certainly a lot at the Armada a lot of the the applications we might make you know we'll focus on that and, and look for you know empirical outcomes from, from that and, and that's been really galvanizing in lots of great ways and 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 it's been great to sort of focus the work but it but it struck me with you know quiz in particular and the amazing national moment that was for you so it must be so thrilling to have like it felt like much more than a water cooler piece of drama. It felt like it was a sort of return to something, not Rethian, the, the sort of non-didactic form of Rethian TV in a way, the sort of 
you know, uh, yeah, around the fireside in a way, kind of, around the little box, kind of sharing stories. And do you think, you know, what culture will offer in this moment, but also coming out, and, and I guess particularly around drama, can be talked about in non-empirical ways or, or, or non-outcome-based ways that, that, that will be persuasive to governments who, are, who may be facing, you know, some tough financial decisions? I don't know whether arguing for the benefits of drama uh, and the power of it without talking about outcomes will ever really work with the government. I think it, they work, it, the funny thing is it works on a personal level because, I'm, because I, people, the government is made up of people and human beings and those human beings go home and they watch a film, they watch a Marvel movie with their kids or they go to the theatre with their partner and they see a show and they know personally what it does to them, whether it makes them laugh or moves them. They know the value of art on themselves as a public argument when you are having to make cuts and difficult choices, I suspect that you can know, that they can only measure it in terms of empirical uh, evidence and outcomes. Uh, I'm not completely against being forced to constantly go, so what does it do, a play? Like, what is that? Because <laughs> it's weird. And it's really great that we live in a cultural ecology that is a mix of public funding and private investment and people come and theatres are often full and people like it and that's good but what is it and and how can you measure its impact on on our politics on our society on our emotional life on our mental health why do i like it why do you like it why do i need it especially now why why do i need it now that i don't have it i don't mind asking those questions which are reductive in their nature but but sometimes that's really it's like when you as a director, give me a note on a play and you go, but yeah, but what is this scene doing? And you, you want to go, I can't put it into words, but the put it, the exercise in, in having to try, I don't think is terrible. But of course, I, 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 I am yeah. aware of all those arguments. And I totally agree that there is a queasiness about, and we're going to have to start making these arguments, all of us in the coming weeks, there's a queasiness about reducing it to here's the GDP or here's the, there's the investment you get back in VAT and ticket sales. Because we know it's more than that, like way beyond more than that. But you, it's about winning the argument and we're going to have to fight it again and we're going to have to take people with us. So I think it's both. I think always reminding people that it get, you get back more than you give and the social good, the, the good it does on communities and the ecology of businesses around any theatre and whatever. I think given that um, I really believe, as you mentioned, quiz, which is an amazingly lovely thing, and all the other things I'm enjoying, normal people or things on Netflix or podcasts, I, I think... People like have been reminded in isolation of why these things are necessary emotionally and psychologically and spiritually, uh, and I think your average person will be more open to the value of that, especially if we remind them unfortunately that it's not inevitable that it will always exist, and the next quarantine, if there ever mm. is one, and hopefully there won't be the pipeline is already been turned off at the other end mm-hmm. so if, if you want if you want this stuff again we're going to need to fund it there was a line in um Inc. that we did together when the the interviewer was interviewing Rupert Murdoch at the beginning of the second half and he attacked Murdoch for only wanting sales and giving people what they want and and defended the idea of the press as being part of um I'm going to misquote it here but you know our, our own sense of national narrative and 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 our sense of self and and can you say anything about this idea of national narrative because it feels that particularly this prime minister is very invested in that historically but also you know recognizes that 
you know, culture does have a role to play in, in our national narrative. But, but like for you, you know, particularly as a writer writing plays about these institutions, you know, what is a national narrative, given that it can't have a beginning, a middle and an end? Is it just chapters? Is it like... Yes, do you understand? Uh, uh, yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, uh, yes, of course, there are, there are good and bad aspects to national myths and the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. I think that was the line that the journalist says to Murdoch. It depends what they're trying to do, isn't it? They can try to conceal or maintain a lie about your strength or about your or hide your weaknesses. But I, I think in the strongest sense, it's about giving a voice to, to people and allowing them to share their experience that becomes part of a, a mosaic of many national narratives. And I think it, it's, it's human nature. This is, this, is, this is the power of, to me, this is, will always be the power of drama and particularly the power of drama about putting real life stories on stage from the recent past or on screen like quiz. Probably more importantly, the Brexit film I did with Benedict Cumberbatch on Channel 4 last year, mm. which is what value does that add to a real life event that is ongoing and also, let's be honest, suffers from its own myth making and its own fiction competing with fact. But I think what drama's power always does is it does structure it, it just puts it into a frame and seals it into that frame mm-hmm. and demands that you press pause on it and that you step back from it and you look at it and you go, so what is that? What is that? That someone made a decision and this was the consequence of that decision. This institution enacted this policy or this thing and this was the result of that. It allows you to, just to put something in context and actually see it because the real world is just full of random, meaningless, exhausting events that don't seem to mean anything. Mean anything. In a funny way, that's why I really like the Sunday newspapers because day to day, week to week, tweet to tweet, it doesn't mean anything. It's inconsequential. But to breathe on a Sunday and go, so what happened this week and why did it happen and what did people want? And what does that say about us as a system or as a, as a society? I think that's the value of drama. So I don't mind making plays and films that interrogate national narratives that also in a weird way contribute to those national narratives in and of themselves. I think that's, that's acceptable and quite fun. No, and you're really good at it. <laughs> Maybe sort of jumping off from that idea, it, you know, obviously you know, to have a national narrative, you need to have a sense of your past to know where you're going, I guess. And, you know, uh, so many of your plays are as you say about you know real people or real events and well by definition they're in the past some relatively recent but some you know further ago and they all are treated with affection wherever they may lie on on not that they aren't without bite and criticism but they are affectionate about the people who inhabited those rooms in those moments nostalgia as an idea has been quite politicized in the last few years and is seen as more of a reactionary position and I guess many on the left would, would see, see nostalgia as a place of refuge for the right and a place of justification for decisions made. And it strikes me also we're in this moment now where there's a rupture and when we, are, we will look back and go the time before the virus and the time after the virus, but even though now we're in the time of during the virus. So, you know, whatever our political attitudes to nostalgia might be, we will all be nostalgic and we probably are nostalgic at the moment. And can you say anything a bit about what nostalgia means for you in your writing? And, 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 and do you think it needs to be political or do you, think, do you feel a need to reclaim it from, from the right in any way? I never thought of that. Yeah, I kind of like that. The left has a huge problem with a number of these things, don't they, in terms of it has a, it has a problem with how it expresses any form of moderate patriotism 
uh, where you're allowed to say, I really like this yeah. about my country, but that doesn't mean I support everything about my country. Yeah. Similarly with nostalgia, what value does it have? And so, yeah, Quiz, the TV drama, well, was sort of nostalgic, and I was kind of aware of that. It was a love letter to television and event television as a way of uniting around a thing collectively and experience a th- experiencing a thing. Ink was a play that did what was mm. messy and dirty and uncompromising. It was it looked at the dark elements of human nature, and it both defended and criticised the institution of the press, I hope, in a balanced way. Mm-hmm. But it also then celebrated a world that was lost, that street and that community and mm. those restaurants and that culture that is very romantic and very exciting. And, you know, the sequence in, in Quiz where we, we showed how you used to make a newspaper using hot, hot metal press and, and, and as opposed to mm. just uploading something onto a website, you got down and dirty and started hitting it with a hammer. Is that nostalgic? Mm. I guess it, I guess it is. It's both it was for the journalists who came. Yeah, yeah. they loved it. They were like, oh, that was wonderful. I think it can be both. It can both seduce an audience who either was there and misses it or was never there and wants to access it and see what it was like to do to make a newspaper mm. in 1969. I don't think that excludes also a more muscular and rigorous interrogation of the thing that you're nostalgic about as well. In fact, if anything, mm. it popularises it and makes it more accessible because, you're, because it's seductive. It's seductive. I mean, a lot of your work, I guess, has sat in the pretty wide corridor, admittedly, of sort of, I guess, what, the 60s through to to now, I guess, mostly. I mean, I know there are deviations there. It's interesting to me that, that the two, like genuinely, not in a sort of academic way, genuinely, the, the two moments that people seem to be looking at most consistently now are this sort of Spanish flu epidemic of 100 years ago that everyone's trying to work out that the science of that because it was really the last time that anything like this had happened. It seems unfeasibly long time ago. And and I guess also, yeah, the, the big state intervention sort of in the post-war period, the sort of Bevan, you know, you know w- w- what a big state will look like. Again, you know, closer, but still quite a long time ago. Um, you know, my mother was born on VE Day, so she had her 75th birthday a couple of days ago. And, uh, you know, I thought, God, that's it was a long time ago that those big decisions, you know, macroeconomic decisions were, 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 were taken that we're talking about now. As a writer, does this moment we're in now make you possibly want to look even further back? Or does it make you feel very much that you want to write about now or, or the future? I mean, is that a meaningful question for you? Yeah, always. It's never been a particularly original thing that, that I've done. In, in terms of finding past equivalents to make sense of what's happening now, it's what theatre's done all the time. Sometimes just so the playwrights could stay safe and not be executed. But I do, <laughs> I do enjoy doing that. I do enjoy. It's not finding refuge in the past, but I do enjoy one step removed as a way of getting perspective on it. So I've been like you just referenced the um, the post-war period. I've been, I've got a book somewhere around me uh, with from John Maynard Keynes and the um, the global economic rewrite that he did and I always find it fascinating that the guy who basically rewrote the new economy post-war also helped found the Arts Council and made sure that that was an integral Mm -hmm. part of the new social fabric art for everybody and happiness as well as pensions and yeah there are of course lessons and and, and comparisons that that can be useful to make but it's also like what's the point like what what are you looking for you're looking to capture the spirit of an age that reflects the now 
due to focusing on an, an institution. I don't know, but yeah, I am. I am looking to the past always, not because I'm scared of the future mm-hmm. or of the present, but it's just. It's just. It's also just fun. I just love love history. I can't. I just can't help it. Because <laughs> there's nothing going on now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, like you know, the interiority and mental health of the moment. I mean, I, I, people say, oh, well, the writers must be fine. It's the poor actors. They're extroverts. The writers love being on their own. But I don't think that's true. I think writers love sometimes being on their own and then also having time in the rehearsal room or in the pub or <laughs> with all the other stuff. I mean, is it, is it, is it a good time or a bad time? And, and what are you doing? No, it's, exa- it's exactly as you said. I'll blow my note if I get one more message from a family member or a friend that goes, oh, you must be loving this. You must be getting so much done. I am, I am not getting much done. <laughs> It's strangely distracting and scary and upsetting a global pandemic. Oh. So no, I'm compl- I'm embarrassingly inconsistent, and I've I've like a lot of writers you will hear I've mm-hmm. I've had to let go of the shame and the embarrassment about having all of this extra time. And I know not everybody does have extra time because of kids mm-hmm. and because of childcare and different things. I actually do have more time on my hands than I've ever had personally, and I'm getting much less done than I've ever done in my 15 year writing life things just take longer instead of wading through warm water it's like wading through slow setting concrete i can only assume it's just because place you have to access as a writer is your head and often the bits of the bits of your own brain that that scare you or that where you feel very vulnerable it's just less fun to go in there sometimes at the moment when you feel lonely or when you feel worried about somebody that you care about it's also hard to write when you don't have a definite thing because writing is mm. weird at the best of times because you're just making stuff up. You're, you're on your own in a room at a computer <laughs> pretending something is real when you know it isn't real. And you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a mental unlock you have to do to make that not silly. But And what helps is deadlines. What helps is there's a theatre programmed season that you can see yourself in and that, that, that day by day that comes closer. Or you're writing a television drama and that's already in pre-production and you're assembling a team. It's real. It's a real thing. Everything is abstract at the moment. Everything is hypothetical. Mm. And that's quite hard to, I think, motivate you to do the work that you probably need to do. But um, yeah, it's just accepting Mm. that it will be weird. It is weird and it will be weird for a bit. Well, that's good to know because we'll enjoy it all the more when we get back. We've got a couple of projects on the go, so hopefully people who listen to this will uh, will see some of James's brilliant stage work soon. Thank you. Rupert Gould, Artistic Director of the Almeida Theatre, was in conversation with the playwright James Graham. And you can find out more about the Almeida Theatre at almeida.co.uk. And to discover more about the Genesis Foundation's work, go to genesisfoundation.org.uk.